Well, if you have your Bible or you have a Bible app, I want you to open up right now to the table of contents. Open up to the table of contents. In the table of contents, I want you to find the book of Jonah and turn to that page because you will flip for 10 minutes if you try to get to Jonah on your own. Now, if you want to really risk it, eight books to the left of the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find it. Those are thin little pages, man, so it's up to you. It's your adventure, not mine. All right. So, on your way there, I want you to be thinking about something. Now, I know as a church, uh, we are not a judgmental church. I get that we're not a judgmental church. We just have opinions about people. We make judgments, not judgmental. It's totally different. Um, and so, I want you, right now, to, to make sort of a mental index or an assessment of how you're prone to assess individuals. In fact, I want you to think about maybe a, a, a name or a group or sort of at least a casual idea of something that you may have opinions of, that you're not judgmental toward, just judging, all right? So... Think about those individuals or those groups or those people that you may have a tendency to dismiss or maybe a tendency to mock. Maybe when it's just you and your spouse, it's that group or that person that you make fun of. That individual that you may find in the ugliness of your mind, that when you think about them, you think of some derogatory label or phrase or picture. Think about that person that you go, I just think they're less intelligent, less refined, less sophisticated. Think about the person that you think, you know what, that person's lazy, or selfish, or perverse, or arrogant, or snobbish, or destructive, or cruel, or rude. Think about that person that drives you crazy. Think about that person that drives you to drink. Antifreeze if you got it, right? Like, think about that person. Maybe that person is your boss. Maybe that person is your neighbor. Maybe that person's an ex-friend. Maybe that person is interested in your son or daughter, and you don't like that they're interested in your son or daughter. Think about, again, that label, that grouping. Maybe it's those liberals that don't work. Maybe it's those conservatives that have no compassion. Maybe it's those people that shop at Walmart. I don't know what your list is. Maybe it's Hollywood. Maybe it's D.C. Right? Maybe it's Sultan. I don't know. Showing you love, bro. All right. So... Maybe it's that person that's that redneck that says, Zeke, let's go hunt some coons. Right? You go, that's the person I judge. Or maybe it's the person that goes, Zeke, let's go shopping. Right? So maybe that's the person that you judge. Maybe it's the person that just pets a cat while watching NASCAR. Maybe that's the person you judge. Right? <laughs> Whatever it is, you've got an opinion, you've got a thought, you've got an idea. I want you to take that, and I want you to hold that in your head for the rest of this message. Just, just tuck it in, hold on to it, as we go into the book of Jonah. And I start in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. He said, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Now, I'm going to stop right there because I want you to understand how much relationship we may have to this little four-chapter book, all right? Um, the city of Nineveh would be much like the city of Seattle, much like the city of Seattle. Um, the god of Nineveh was the fish god, Dagon. Dag is Hebrew uh, and also uh, Aramaic for, for fish, and so they worshiped the fish god, and they were very much a fish-oriented city. It was a large city. It was a well-known city. It was a trading city. So very much like Seattle. And like Seattle, they excelled. They were ahead of the curve on wickedness. Welcome to Seattle, all right? Seattle and Nineveh, very 
parallel. And so God goes to this Jewish prophet, and he says, I want you to go to this pagan city that loves fish and that loves to sin, and I want you to go and do some things. In fact, he says, I want you to announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. In fact, literally in Hebrew, he's saying the, the, the odor of their wickedness has risen all the way to my throne, right? So he says, here's the deal. It stinks to high heaven when I think about Nineveh. These guys are awesome at wickedness. I mean, these guys are pounding wickedness. It's like they're just slamming Red Bull and three shots with like a crack pipe to stir it. I mean, they, they are jacked up in sin and wickedness. They're awesome at this. And so I want you to go and I want you to preach against Nineveh. I want you to let them know that, you know what, you are under judgment. It is coming because you have fallen in love with sin so much. So God says, I'm going to send the prophet. And it's interesting, his name and his father's name. Literally, his name means dove and his father's name means truth. So he's the dove of truth. Right? Very interesting. I mean, this is a parallel even to the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And now the dove of truth, Jonah, son of Amittai, is going to go and he's going to preach. Which is what the city needs to hear. They need to hear the word of God, right? So he's going to send the prophet, a messenger from the people of God for the peoples of the world. It says in verse 3, though, but Jonah got up, just like God said. He says, get up. He says, all right, I'm going to get up. Says, but he went the opposite direction. Prodigal prophet, this is awesome. He says, to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, and when he found a ship leaving for Tarshish, he bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Now, I want you to look at this map really quick. Bring up the first one so you get a sense of this, right? So he lives in this town that's pretty close to Nazareth, right? So, he's, you know, he's a Jewish prophet. That's his job. But he goes down to Joppa, and he's like, all right, God wants me to go to the northeast. So what do I do if God wants me to do that? Well, I'm going to Tarshish. Now, let's see how far Tarshish is from where, where he's going. Bring up the next slide. It's that far. What he says is, I live in the Middle East, but I'm going to the Atlantic. That's what I'm doing, right? He's taking off in a very big way. This journey will be a one-year boat ride. That's how far he's going. When you hear the story of Jonah, everybody thinks they know the story of Jonah. You don't know the story of Jonah, right? You know, you're thinking, oh, he gets on a boat. Maybe he's going to sail like 100 miles. No, this is a long journey. There is no way you can try to get further from God than going there. There's nothing else. It's just open water after that. He's like, that's good enough for me. That's where I'm going. So what you have is a prophet commissioned by God to do what God wants him to do. And the very first thing that God wants him to do is go and preach to these people. And he says, ah, I think I'll run from you. Which like running from God is like running from the IRS. You can't do it. All right. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to be able to outrun outlast. But he tries to run from God. And when I look at this, I, you know, I, I, I kind of get it. Like, we're all going to look and go, man, I'm glad I'm not a Jonah. That guy was a dipstick, right? I mean, that's what we're going to have this tendency to do. But in reality, we are awesome. We excel at times in our lives when it comes to wanting to run from God. We all have these times where we say, you know what? I know God says I'm supposed to love, but I, I, I hate so God says, do this, and we do that. He says, I want you to head east, or head west, or whatever, and, and we go, I'm going to go the other direction. I'm going to do the other thing. God says, I want you to forgive, and so we say, no, 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 I'm going to choose to resent. God says, I want you to submit, so we no, 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 I want to resist. God says, give, we say, no, I'm going to keep. God says, obey, we say, no, we're going to rebel. God says, attend, we say, no, we're going to avoid. God says, reconcile, we say, no, 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 I, I want to begrudge. God says, listen, and I say, no, I want to reject. See, we all have Jonahs lurking inside our hearts. We all do, and we all have this propensity. God says, have faith, and so what do we do? We turn around and we doubt. God says, I want you to reach, so what do we do? We choose to sit 
God says, I want you to be tender. So what do we choose to do? Choose to be bitter. It doesn't matter what it is. There are so many things in God's word that he calls us to do than what we choose so often to say, no, 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 that is inconvenient. That gets in my way. That is not what I want to do. It doesn't serve me. So I'm going to do my thing. Welcome to the life of Jonah. Sometimes it's a little bit more particular. God says, do yourself a favor. You know what? Save sex for marriage. So you know what we do? She's hot. And and we fail because we want to go the other way. We want to run from God. God says, love your enemies. No, no, no. I want to resent my enemies. I can't stand my enemies. My enemies are idiots in my humble opinion, whatever that means. God says, give your money. No, 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 I'm going to keep my money. Or I don't have enough money to give, so I, I can't do it. Whatever it is, we run. And we don't just run from God. We run from God, and we run to things that often are silly or sadistic or just flat out destructive. Like this. Here's this Jewish prophet. He's a landlubber. So what's he run to? A boat. Right? I mean, this, and understand, going on a long voyage like this is like the most dangerous thing you can do. A lot of ships were wrecked at sea, lost, sunk, whatever. This is not like a wise move. It's dangerous. He runs from God and into a dangerous situation. It's a little bit like saying, I'm going to spend the next year skydiving with my grandfather's World War II parachute. This would be awesome. This would be a brilliant move. Way safer, right? But people, when they run from God, one of the things that's so often the case is they're running from truth and they're running from wisdom and they're running away from people with truth and wisdom and they run into foolish decisions, right? I'm mad at my parents, so what I'm going to do? I'm going to find some bad boy and get married. Brilliant move. But that's what people do. Or, I'm not happy in my marriage, so I'm going to run from it and into an affair. Or when it blows up, I'm going to run from the commitment and I'm going to seek the divorce. Because that's going to make me feel much better. I'm so down about my finances, I'm going to run from responsibility and into debt. Because for a little while, I'll be really, really happy. Again, people, all of us, are awesome at running away from God and into folly. And so that's really all that's happening here. He's running from truth, running from God, running from wisdom, running from calling, running from purpose, and into danger, right? I'm going the other way than the way that God wants me to go. And, and I think about this too, when we run, so often it isn't 180. You know, we don't say, hey, God says this way, so I'm just going to flip it and go this way. Sometimes God says, I want you to go this way, and we go, well, I'll go this way. I'm just going to get off five degrees. Then I feel better about myself. I'm not so bad if I'm just off five degrees. 180 degrees, oh, that's bad. But if God says due north, zero degrees, and I just go kind of northeast, two degrees, I'm, I'm not as bad as the guy that goes 180. Right? We all just say, I just need 359 other choices. I just As long as I don't have to do the one. And so that's kind of what you have with Jonah. He goes 180, but boy, we all do it in all sorts of ways. And we run from God, we run to rebellion. So he's this fugitive on the run from God. Now the question is, why does he run? And we're going to get to that in a little while. But he's on the run. And as he's on the run, in verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. And fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw cargo overboard to lighten the ship. This is a godogram, is what this is. Or in the biz, we call it an ocrapogram, all right? Because, I mean, honestly, it's like he thinks, I'm going to run, and God says, all right, this is going to be cute. Get on the boat. We'll get it out to sea a little bit. Now, attention grabber. God loves to use storms as attention grabbers. And so Jonah, in some ways you look at you, man, this guy's kind of done with God, but God's not done with Jonah. He's going to get his attention. And so he's going to spank him. Unfortunately, there's this collateral damage in the midst of it. There's all the sailors, right? So it's like, you hope this guy never gets on your plane. That's the bottom line, right? Like, 
You know, you get, every time you get on a plane, just pray that prayer. Don't th- let there be a Jonah on here, man. That's all I'm asking, all right? So, these guys got a Jonah on their ship, and so what do they do? First, they try religion. They cry out to their gods. They shout out to their idols. But religion doesn't save. So then they try their works. They chuck everything overboard, right? Well, maybe my works will rescue me. But nothing is working. So they are frantic. But meanwhile, it says, all the time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. I mean, here's another lesson right there. Um, Often, when you're the one on the run, and everything is falling apart around you, and it's affecting everybody around you because your life is falling apart, often you're the last one to see that everything's falling apart. Often the people around you are going to be more affected. Your wife, your husband, your kids, your co-workers, whatever. They're going to be more affected by your rebellion, oftentimes faster than you. Because you're so blind, you don't see, you don't know. He doesn't see it, he doesn't know. He's crashed down in the bottom of the boat. Just sleeping. And by the end, man, the effects are going to affect a lot of different people, right? So he's asleep, but the captain goes down after him. And he says, how can you sleep like this? He says, get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. Isn't this the weirdest thing? The prophet is asleep. The pagan's awake. The pagan's freaking out. The prophet has just crashed. The pagan wakes up the prophet says, you should pray. Oh, yeah. And here's the nuttiest part. There's no evidence he actually prays. You should pray. I should cook a hot pocket. I mean, it's like, he doesn't do anything. Right? The prophet is buried in the belly of the ship. Where he should be proclamational. When he should be saying, here's how God can save us. When he should be up there on the deck saying, everybody, grab a knee. Huddle up. We're going to God. He should do that, but he doesn't do that. Right? He's a light under a basket. Instead of doing his God-ordained job, which is he knows the truth and should proclaim it, he's more concerned about himself. He's tired. He wants to sleep. He's too busy to pray. He's too uh, self-consumed to preach. It's too much about him to be about God. So he's crashed out. So you've got the pagan begging for salvation. You've got the prophet just sawing logs. So the crew's like, what do we do? Verse 7. So then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. This is like kind of spin the bottle of blame. That's all this is, right? So they're up on the deck, right? You know, and there's Jonah like, don't land on me, don't land on me, don't land on me, don't, right? And it lands on him, right? When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. And so they started asking, why is this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What's your line of work? What country are you from? What's your nationality? Apple or Microsoft? Boxers or brief? Cats or dogs? I mean, you know, like, they're, they're asking, like, all these questions. They want to know everything, right? Why has this happened? Tell us about your mother, right? I mean, everything. And I love his answer. He says, well, first of all, my nationality, I'm a Hebrew. And what are the Hebrews? A people for all peoples. Right? Go back to what we learned last week. Israel is to be a light for the nations. They're to be the beacon of truth, of God's love, and God's law. He says, I represent God's true message on earth. I'm a Hebrew. What's my job? My job is to worship God. Literally, in Hebrew, what he says here is, uh, my job is to fear God, and that's why I worship him. It's Literally, it's a derivative of the word fear I fear God so much, I ran from him. And I decided to go out on the open ocean where nothing bad ever happens. So that was genius of me. He says, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. So the God that is bringing up this big tempest, yeah, that's the God I know. That's the God I serve. So basically, I'm on the run from my boss, not doing my job. Um, We're in trouble. That's, that's what he knows. He knows the storm is for him. He knows the storm is an attention getter. 
And I want you to understand this, when God does this, because God does it. This is not some just out of nowhere storm kicked up and God uses it for his purposes. It starts off by saying, you know what? God kicked up the storm. And God is doing this because he's not trying to pay Jonah back. We sometimes see that. Like when something bad happens in our life, and if God actually does it, we go, oh, God is paying me back. Now, sometimes God is drawing you back. Not paying you back, drawing you back. And that's really what he's doing with the prophet here. And so the sailors were terrified when they heard this. For uh, He had already told them that he was running away from the Lord. I said, oh, why did you do it? Why did you do it, you dummy? This guy's a big god. You're foolish. So since the storm was getting worse, worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to stop the storm? How should we jump in the way of this? And so what's the solution? Throw me into the sea. Brilliant. And it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. This is so, this is stupid. We tell the story to kids. What we need to say is, we're going to tell you about Jonah. He's an idiot. All right? That's the way in every Sunday school class it should start. Not, he gets swallowed by a fishy. No, he's an idiot. All right? He is, he is dumber than a stump is what he is. Because he knows God's done it. He knows it's God's hand. And what's the solution? Kill me. Right? That, that's really his solution. Chuck me in the water and just kill me. And, and on top of it, he, he's, he's... Here's what he's asking these guys. Here's what he could do. He could say, it's all my fault. I'll jump off the boat. He's so lazy. He says, no, throw me off the boat. I'm not even going to jump. You know, it's so about me that I want you guys to take the fall from my death. Murder me. So he's going to implicate the whole crew in his death. This is how self-consumed the guy is. But the sailors are actually pretty cool. Verse 13, instead the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to land. Like, no, we're not going to kill you. We're just going to row harder for you, right? But the storm was too violent for them and they couldn't make it, Right? I mean, they're risking their own lives. I mean, they could have just said, throw you overboard, gone, boom, you know, like that's it. These guys are good guys. So finally in verse 14, it says, and they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. So remember, they were talking to their idols. Now they're talking to Jonah's God. It says, oh Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sins and don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh Lord, you've sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Yes, to draw him back, not to punish him. And then the sailors picked up Jonah and threw him into the raging sea. Again, I look at this and I go, man, these sailors are pretty good guys, but Jonah is just missing it. I mean, at this point, he could have said, fellas, fellas, I got this. All we need to do is pray. I'll repent. It's my fault. I'll say, God, I'm ready to go. Just take the ship to land. I'll go to Nineveh. It's all good. Everybody's saved. In fact, he couldn't have even said, sailors, uh, we're going to pray, and when this thing stops, you're going to know that my God is the real God. He could have went full evangelist, full missional. But he doesn't do any of that. He's so self-consumed. He doesn't even see the right solution. He's so sinful. So instead, he says, chuck me over. So he ends up in the drink. And as soon as he's in the drink, it says, and the storm stopped at once. Plop. That would be a cool scene. It says, then the sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice, and they vowed to serve him. I mean, this is the most awesome thing. It's like, God has this prophet on board, but he's like the Maxwell smart of evangelism. The guy can't do it. Right? And like every young person is like, who's Maxwell Smart? I don't even want to try. All right? Breaks my heart. That's all I have to say. All right? So, right? But he, he's just not doing his job at all. It's like God uses the storm of Jonah's life to get the attention of these sailors. And these sailors come to saving faith in the God of Israel, not because of Jonah's efforts, but despite his efforts. It's like God uses the storm in Jonah's life. Jonah's barely seeing the purpose of it at this point, but God uses it for greater purpose. God can use all kinds of things to draw all sorts of people for all sorts of conditions to himself. And so he plops in. They are awestruck. They turn to the Lord God of Jonah. 
and they vow to serve him. It says in verse 17, the story we are familiar with now. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. God arranges the storm. God arranges the fish. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Now, real quick, I I won't get into a lot with this, but uh, we teach kids inadvertently that this whale swallowed Jonah. It's a fish. It's not a whale. Um, And the people tried to explain, well, you know, there's this guy back in the 1800s that was swallowed by a whale and lived. It's a miracle, man. That's all it is. We try to scientifically show, well, it could have been this kind of fish and this kind of fish and this kind of... It's just a big fish that did a really cool thing and God did it miraculously. Just stick with that and you'll do well. If anything, just go, this is the first fisher of men. Just literally. That's all it is. All right? Um, Pavooch. All right. So, um, you'll do well. Now, what's he supposed to go? He's supposed to go to the city of Nineveh that worships Dagon, the fish god. Instead, he ends up in Dag Belly. Right? So, but there's a link. At least there's a fish a part of it somehow. But here's the thing about this fish. It's literal, it's true, but it's theological. This is God's grace. This is God's grace. Because you know what? Jonah up to this point has been obstinate, rebellious, unwavering, doesn't pray, doesn't repent, doesn't care about others. He's so utterly self-consumed that when he hits the water, my recommendation to God is, is just take him to the bottom and be done. Go get another guy in Israel. There's probably better people to send, but God doesn't do that. God shows grace. Undeserved favor. Jonah's rebellious. God shows grace. Jonah doesn't want to play by God's rules. And he shows him grace. Now, I'm sure this doesn't feel like grace initially to Jonah. He's like, I was, I was drowning. Now I'm digesting. This is creepy. You know, like, I, I don't dig that. But see, God's got a plan. He's got a really good plan. I, I can believe that living in the belly of a fish for three days is not a good place to live. But it's a great place to learn. Right? And God is going to do some teaching. He's going to do some things. He's going to take that acidic brine in the belly of this fish, and he's going to eat away at the rebellion of Jonah. That leads us into chapter 2. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, Lord, and you heard me. That's what everybody does when they've been on the run from God, and God spanks them and gets their attention. You know what they do? They call on the Lord. And it took all of that for him to finally call on the Lord. And this whole chapter, chapter 2, is what I call the Psalm of the Tap Out. Right? It's where he just taps out. God, I'm done. I'm done. Tap out. You win. Listen to what he says. He says, you threw me into the ocean depths. Again, he knows that God has been doing this whole thing. And I sank down deep into the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, O Lord, you have driven me from your presence. Yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. I sank beneath the waves and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down into the very roots of the mountains, which is the bottom of the ocean where the land comes to the lowest points. He says, I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates lock shut forever. I mean, this is God's version of waterboarding, right? This is how God's doing it and his life. And, and, and you, you see all that imagery there, and it seems very like weird language. But all he's saying is, you know what, I'm swamped. And you've said that. You've said, I'm over my head. And he says, that's me. I'm over my head. I'm sunk. I'm under pressure. I'm in the depths of despair. That's all he's saying here. And with that, he's saying, only you can rescue me. Only you can do it. Sometimes God drags us down to the crushing depths. Again, not to crush us, but to save us. And he's having to do that with Jonah. He's taking him down deep. He's taking him to the bottom. There's rock bottom, and then there's the belly of a fish. That's deep. That's low. That's crushing. But he is bitter. He is rebellious. He is stubborn. And God is going to get his attention to save him. And Jonah knows, man, God's put me here. 
So he says, you've done all of this. You've taken me to the deepest depths. Right? So kind of the, the bad news part. But then there's the good news. He says, but you. But you. Oh, Lord, my God, snatch me from the jaws of death. Yes, I rebelled. I was sinful. I was wrong. I was opposed. But you. In your grace, spanked me. And in your grace, saved me. You snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life slipped away, I remembered the Lord. Oh, that's right. The God I serve, the God I know, the God I preach, the God that has everlasting kindness and love, that's the God I remembered. He says, And my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Those who worship false gods turn their back on all of God's mercies. But I will offer you sacrifices with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all of my vows. For my salvation comes from the Lord alone. What happens here is just simply repentance, reconciliation, relief. So sweet, so satisfying, so fulfilling, so saving. Right? That's where God has to get the prophet. Sometimes that's where God has to get us. He won't take us at times an inch further because, frankly, we don't want to go unless he reminds us that he is God and we are not, and he's in charge and we are not. And we can't sit there and say, no, 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 it's only under my rules, based on my conditions, based on my timetable, if it fits my agenda. God says, no, I love you enough to step in. And praise God that Jonah says, all right, I see it, I got it, I trust you, I'm ready, okay, let's go. I'm ready to go to Nineveh, Narnia, Mordor, I don't care, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'm ready to rock. I'm ready to roll. Let's do it. And so in chapter 2, verse 10, it says, And the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah onto the beach. In Hebrew, it says vomit. Right? And people look and go, Oh, poor Jonah, covered in all this fish bile, you know, pasty white and all of that. I'm like, I feel bad for the fish, man. You know what I mean? Like, that guy's like three days, like, Oh, it's like a bad burger in here. I don't know what to do. Guy, oh man, it's kosher too. No bacon. This is no fun. Um, like, if it ain't wrapped in bacon, it ain't food. All right, so that's what's going on. So it's like there's this big banner over the top of the whale. Mission accomplished. Blah, there we go. Got him there. We're done. Good to go. Good to roll. So chapter three, verse one. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. He says, "Get up." And go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given to you. Right? Simple commands. Just like what Jesus says to all of his disciples in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples teaching. Right? Go, make, teach. That's really what he's saying here. I want you to get up out of that puddle of bile. I want you to go and I want you to teach. I want you to say. Right? Pretty simple. Now, I want to stop for just a second. I want you to picture in your mind the scene, right? So, all this fish goop laying in the sand or the dirt. It's got to get up and go to Nineveh. In your mind as a kid, when you would hear that story, or in your mind now, how how close in proximity would you think that 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 beach scene is from, from the city of Nineveh? I mean, does he have to, like, is it a port? You know, and he just has to walk around the, the, the little port area to the city. Is it a hundred yards? Is it a half a mile? Is it a mile? Like, how far? Well, let me show you a map of what he faces. The closest he might be to Nineveh at this point is over 500 miles. Like, we get the scene like, well, the fish swallowed him up and spit him out on the, the coastal city of Nineveh. No, it's a desert town, man. This is like Phoenix. Nothing good about that, right? Maybe in January. Maybe January. But it's like July in Phoenix, Nineveh, all right? That's what this is. And so you always get this picture like he's, you know, just boom, gets up, walks like an hour, and goes and preaches. No, th- this is going to take him anywhere from one to two months to get from his... Uh, deployed point, um, 
to Nineveh. He's going to have one to two months of thinking, contemplating, reflecting, praying, preparing. Which, here's the, the great lesson there. Sometimes God will go call you to do something, you rebel, you finally get right, you're ready to do it, and God says, you're not going to get there really, really fast. It's going to take a while. You'll have plenty of time to think about this. What this also teaches is that sometimes you go, well, the fish was the delivery system of getting him to where he's supposed to go. No, the fish is a tool. The fish is a tool of God's redemption. The, tool is a, 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 the fish is a tool of God's ability to cause somebody to reflect. Right? The belly of the fish is that. It's not a delivery apparatus. It would have been better to like bring one of those cool like eagles from Lord of the Rings into the equation, just snatched them out of the water, flew them all the way, and dropped them in Nineveh. No, no, no. He's going to have to put some work in here. So he says, get up, go to the city of Nineveh, walk one to two months. And it says, this time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command, and he went to Nineveh, right? And it was a city so large that it took three days to see it all. Matter of fact, in, in Hebrew, when it's a city so large, it literally says God-sized. It was a God-sized city. It was big. It was well-known in the entire known world, right? It took three days to see it all, so about 50 miles around that you would have to walk to see the whole thing, right? Big city. It says, on the day that Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. So I want you again to picture the scene. He comes into town, kind of surveys a little bit, starts going around, and what's his message? You ready for the message? You're going to hell. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. 40 days. Not a very popular message. At all, right? Like, is this what we teach kids? He went and he preached the gospel. No, he says, you're going to hell. That's what he preached. Just that. Which is the gospel. You know, I mean, even this, you know, it's like, we, 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 we would probably today go, okay, I'm, I'm going to go into downtown Seattle, Fish City, right? Our little Nineveh of wickedness. And I'm going to go down and say, oh, in 40 days, it's all gone. We say, oh, no, no, you can't do it that way. That would be the wrong way to do it. I'm not contesting that, but here, here's what I'm contesting. Um, the gospel is not designed to win a popularity contest. It's not designed for that. You know, sometimes we want to rescue God from being God. You know, we go, oh, those are offensive things that God says, and I, I, don't, I don't want to be offensive because I might chase them away. It's like, as though the Holy Spirit isn't in play. It's just up to us. Right? God knows what he's doing. So he's told him, I want you to go to the city, I want you to tell them this. See, we have the gospel. The gospel is good news. That's literally what the word gospel means. God has good news. But the good news only makes sense in light of the bad news. If the only good news we have is God loves you, and we don't put in there, but here's the bad news that leads to the good news. The bad news is you're under God's judgment. God does send people to hell, but he came, he died himself to take your sin so you could go to heaven and be with him. If you don't tell the whole story, you're doing no one any favors. If it's just God loves you, then they're like, great, God loves me. Thank you for that. God loves you too. Pat on the back. Doesn't mean anything. Everybody already thinks God loves them. That's no message. If you just go down to Seattle and you meet people, do you think God loves you? If they believe in a God, they think God loves them. Everybody thinks that. That's why everybody who believes in God is going to heaven, because God is love and he wouldn't send anybody to hell. That's the whole idea, they think. So the bad news is, there is sin. The bad news is, there is judgment. It's a truthful message. It's not a popular message. It's like the national debt, all right? True, not popular. So we have to tell bad news to get to good news. And so he tells the bad news. But here's what's interesting about this. It says in 40 days. The 40 days is the grace. He could have just rolled in and said, um, like really fast too, it's going to burn, it's going to burn, like in 30 seconds. Like nobody can even pick up and go, right? Just shoot, get through as quick as you can and fire behind you. That's not what happened. God says 40 days. 40 days to reflect, 40 days to think, 40 days to repent, 40 days to consider. So they have 40 days of grace. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God's message 
from the greatest to the least, everybody believes. So Jonah says, you're going to hell. And they all said, well, we're going to hell. We should do something about that, right? That's what they do. So they declared a fast and put up burlap over uh, to show their sorrow. And when the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah had said, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat in a heap of ashes. I mean, this is humility. When a pagan king or a pagan captain on the ship says, we surrender to God, that's a big deal. So they laid themselves down, right? This is then the king and his nobles sent a decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals of your herds and flocks, may eat or drink of anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. A whole city confesses their sin. A whole city. And we go, well, how? How? Again, this is one of those things where we have to just own is that the Holy Spirit does things that we don't see. And He does things that we can't fathom. And it's just not in our control to do the heavy lifting. Right? We're just called to share. We're just supposed to say, yeah, here's the good news. Bad news leads to good news. This is the news. And you trust the Holy Spirit to be in play, doing a work, opening hearts, going before us. Our job's not to convince because we can't be that convincing without the Holy Spirit in play. So the Holy Spirit does this, and he saves the whole city. And you know what's crazy about this is, here's the thing. We hear that and we go, that will never happen today. We are so riddled with doubt and fear and faithlessness. We just don't believe God can save a city today. As though they weren't as bad. I mean, just known for killing their babies and being completely perverted. Kind of pales even in comparison to what we face. But God saves the whole city. The king went on to say they must turn from their evil ways and stop all of their violence. So it's not just confession, it's repentance. It's a change in action. And then he says, who can tell? Perhaps even God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. And so they believed, they declared, they put on their humility, they put off their sins. I mean, this is the right set of conditions. The Holy Spirit has completely opened the city for the gospel. Verse 10, when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. See, repentance will always alter God's course. Because that's why God is doing what he's doing. That's why God chucks Jonah in the water. Uh, That's why God says 40 days. It's why we go back to the story of Joshua around the wall for seven days. This is God saying, I want you to repent. I want you to change. I want you to draw near to me. If you don't, there is judgment. That's just true. But what I want more is for you to be reconciled to me. I want love more than simply judgment. Now, in love, God judges. And we get into this, is he judging or is he loving? And the answer is yes. It's yes. Now, here's what I'd say about God's love in relationship to God's judgment. God so loves, he will inflict his own judgment on himself on your behalf. That's what he does. God says, I so love you, I will inflict my judgment on myself for your offenses. But you must repent. Now, if you don't want to repent, what you're saying is, I don't want you, God. I want my ways, my things, my priorities, my agenda. I'm my God. You're not my God. And he says, then, then I, I, I inflict the judgment on you. But I'm willing to receive the judgment on me. God doesn't just make it go away. Judgment either falls to the person or it falls to God. That's a part of his character, too. He has a self-binding set of values that he holds to. And so that's what he offers. And so in this case, God turns and says, you know, I'm not going to put the punishment on you. You know what he did for the city of Nineveh? He put all their punishment on his son Jesus a few hundred years later. That whole city, hundreds of thousands of people, all of their sins placed on his son later. That's what he did. There was no just freebie. There's never a freebie. There's never a mulligan in this sense. It's always judged somehow. 
And so you look at that scene and you go, man, here's this reluctant prophet, totally uninterested in rebellion to God, going the other way. God gets his attention. God drives him to submission. God brings out repentance. He goes into the city, preaches, you're going to hell in 40 days. The whole city says, we need God. I mean, this is the most, one of the most amazing uh, evangelistic missional stories of the entire Bible. Very few places do you see where a whole city comes to God. I mean, that is humongous. That is huge stuff. And we should look at that and go, man, that, that is what we would aspire to. Literally hundreds of thousands of people. I'm thinking about Jonah. He's got to be stoked, man. It's like this giant revival. Hey, how many people raised their hand at the preaching of the gospel? The whole city. I planted a church on Tuesday. By Thursday, I had 100,000 plus as members. I'd be scribbling that all over my resume. I'd be the most excited, jacked up pastor on the planet if that's what happened to me. So how does Jonah see this story? Chapter 4, verse 1. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. We don't teach this to the kids either. It's like we go to the kids. He was sucked into a fish, but then he wanted to preach God's good news. You want to be like Jonah? No! You don't want to be like Jonah. That's what you want to tell kids. Don't be like him. I told you he was stupid in chapter 1 and he's no better in chapter 4. Right? This change of plans greatly upset Jonah. He became very angry. I mean, this is like, uh, in, in Hebrew, it's like, um, it, it was like uh, anger upon anger. I mean, he's, he's, he's steaming mad. He is angry mad. So he complained to the Lord about it. He says, didn't I say before I left home? You want to know why he ran? Here's why he ran. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran. I knew that you are merciful and compassionate. Slutting. Right, that's what he's, that's what he's doing. Filled with unfailing love. Eager to turn back from destroying a people. I knew it. You would chug the mammy pammy land. I mean, like, that's, that's his attitude. Which is crazy, because you know what? It was perfect for him in chapter 2. Right? I'm at rock bottom. I see my sin. I cry it out to you from the depths. Oh, God, thank you for your grace. Now, chapter 4. How dare you give grace? Because these people I don't like. These people irritate me. These people are my enemy. These people I see different. They're less than. They're not, they're not worthy of. I want them to get their pound of flesh. I want them to be judged. I want them to go to hell. Sometimes we get to that place too. Somebody hurts us so bad, we just want them to burn. People will get to places in our life, we will be so hurt sometimes, that we're like, if, if God does not give them their pound of flesh, then God's not fair. That, that's the Jonah that lives in all of us. And so he's upset. He's really upset. I think if you took it a little deeper with this problem, what you see with Jonah, which is what happens with us, we, we have a love affair with, with fairness. We do. We really love... Well, what I mean by that is we want God to treat everybody else fairly and then us graciously. Right? You know, like if we blow it, right, we blow, we go, oh, just forgive me and we're good. If they blow it, Treat them fairly. Give them fairness, God. I'm not asking for more. I don't want a pound of flesh, just some flesh. That's all I'm asking. So Jonah, what he loved, is he loved God's will, as far as a stated set of rules or laws, right? He loved justice and fairness. He loved the religion of his God. What he despised is the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God and the purpose of God. He despised, in essence, the gospel of God because the gospel is you can't earn it, you don't deserve it, only God can bestow it in his kind, loving favor. That's it. But that's not where Jonah's at. In fact, in this little section, verse 1 and 2, uh, in Hebrew, you'll see it in English maybe seven times, in Hebrew, nine times... He says, I or me? I this, I that, I knew, you wouldn't, it affects me, blah, blah, blah. My comfort, my convenience, my culture versus conversion. It's all about me. I'm so busy being self-pitiable, I have no pity for anybody else. Which is sometimes, again, where we can go. 
So he's very upset. So what's he say in verse 3? Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive because what I predicted will not happen. Somebody didn't pack their lithium on this trip is what happened. All right. So verse 4, the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? This is awesome. You want to tick your kid off? Don't scold them. Ask them a self-condemning question. That's way better. Right? Is it okay to hit your sister with a stretch arm strong? Right? You know, like that? It's like, again, I'm crushed that there's kids in here going, what's a stretch arm strong? Go watch Get Smart and we'll talk. All right? So, um, right? So it's just a self-condemning question. Right? It says, then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. Two things. First of all, he doesn't answer. He doesn't answer. Is it, is it, is it right to be angry about this? Right? That's what he's doing. Just not going to say. In fact, if anything, there at the end of verse 5, what the attitude would be is, give me 37 days and I'll tell you. I mean, that's, you know, like... What he does is he just goes outside of the city, slaps on a pair of goggles just outside of the blast radius, and he's hoping, right? That's all he's doing, all right? I still got like 37 days. Things can turn around. They can all fall apart. They can turn into perverts again. I might get lucky, you know? That's, that's his attitude. He's waiting for Duke Nukem God to show up and do some damage. So maybe, right? So what's it say in verse 6? And then the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant. So God's arranging for things. God arranges for a storm. God arranges for a fish. Now God arranges for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort. What's his discomfort? He wants to see a bunch of people burn, right? That's why he's so uncomfortable. Please let them die. But Jonah was very grateful for the plants. Isn't that nice? Right? The guy's like, I can't stand these people. But this ficus is awesome. You know, like, you know what I mean? He's like, it's like a, he's got his little spray bottle listening to Beethoven. Oh, come on, you know? It's like, really? You tree hugger. All right, so, hate people, love my ficus. So, it says in verse 7, but God also arranged for a worm. So God keeps arranging stuff. This is one tough worm, too. The next morning, At dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant, so it withered away. And the sun grew hot, and then God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die again. Death is certainly better than living like this. This is like a first world problem here. Like, you know, I don't have my ficus. Boo-hoo, right? So, he's all upset. And so he's like, I just want to die. And all that's happening here. Is, the, is what God is doing. He's saying, you know, Jonah, I'm doing to you in a small way what you want me to do to Nineveh in a big way. Right? You're all bent out of shape over one plant and your comfort. And you're not bent out of shape about a bunch of people that were going to hell and are not going to hell anymore. Where are your priorities when you worry more about your own bloody comforts than you worry about the souls of men and women? So... God asked the question again, verse 9. Way more calm than probably I am now. All right, so, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Is it right? Jonah says, yes, even angry enough to die. At this point, I want him to die. That's what I think, all right? Like, give me a break. You are this dug in. But that's him. See, because again, he doesn't like grace. He doesn't like the notion that grace saves anyone at any time for any sin uh, in any moment under any conditions fully and completely. It's not a game of fairness. Get that in your mind. If you live for fairness, you don't love the gospel because the gospel is not about fairness. If you want somebody to get their own because they've earned it, then I hope you want to get your own because you've earned it. This has to adjust our thinking, and I fall into this easily. There are some people where I want them to get their own. And God's been beating that stupid out of me. I'm really grateful. That's why I haven't even gone fishing. You know, I'm like, I'm not getting in a boat, right? So, 
There's this other guy I know who went really wild. I don't want that. I might get spit out in Indiana. So, um, true story, true story. God knows what I have to deal with still, right? So, we all struggle. We all struggle. And so, here's Jonah, so angry. I want to die. Verse 10, then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant? though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, literally in Hebrew. They don't know their left hand from their right hand. Not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? I mean, look how God sees this. He says, man, you're worrying about this plant. I'm worrying about people that bear my image. You're worrying about comfort. I'm worrying about souls. That's a big difference. On top of that, he says, these people don't even know better. They don't even know their left from their right. I'll tell you, sometimes as Christians, one of our big failures is we look at the lost world. We look at their provision, their sin, their shame, their guilt, whatever. But we want to hold them accountable like they're believers. We want to say, no, 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 you should do this and you should do this and you should have certain morals and certain character and we'll legislate if we have to and we'll pick it and we'll protest and we'll do all of this. And they don't even know they're left from the right. They don't know up from down. The thing they need is a preacher, not a picketer. They need the gospel, not a lecture. And so that's what God says. They don't even know they're left from the right and you want them to just die and burn because they irritate you by their way of life, their lifestyle. What's the real solution? The real solution is what God has done. He brings a message, moves in their heart, they repent and come to faith. That's the solution. The world needs preachers. The world needs prophets. It doesn't just need finger pointers and people that blow whistles and throw flags and call fouls. That's not hard. That's not hard because it doesn't risk anything. Not really. And what it also is is this. Uh, Here's the bad news. No good news. Here's your problem, but no solution. Here's how you can be saved. It's no, just simply you're condemned. You're just condemned. You're reprehensible. We don't like you. We don't want you. Hopefully you catch the good news somewhere along the line. That's the risk, and that's been his heart. So, with this great reminder that 120,000 people were just spared hell, brought into salvation, does the prophet finally see it and get it and go, yeah. Let's see what he says in verse 12. Verse 12, and Jonah said, nothing. Because there's no verse 12. There's, that's the end. The book stops. Think about that. What are Jonah's final words? I'm so angry, I could die. Another thing we don't teach little kids. That his final tone, his final attitude, his final placement in the Bible is, I am so angry, I want to die, because God, you saved my enemies. I'm not pro them. I'm against them. And so as I wrap up this morning, I look at this and I go, man, we have a decision. We all have a decision. We can choose to be a Jonah or we can choose to be a Jesus. Right? It's that simple. We have to decide if we want to be a resource for the gospel or we simply just want to be a banging gong. This is going to hell, going to hell, going to hell, going to hell, going to hell. I just want to make sure y'all knew. That's it. I mean, honestly, I think even when Jonah comes and preaches that message, it's an inadequate message, and I believe it's inadequate because his heart is not even right. But God uses it in his sovereign grace to draw these people into himself. But again, we have to decide. If we say, you know what, I just curse the environment. Let me do you a favor. It's already cursed. If you just curse the world, it's already cursed. Here's the tragic thing. Only you have the solution. Only you have the words. That's why you don't want to be a Jonah, you want to be a Jesus. What was a Jesus? Friend of sinners. Sinners said, that's my friend. Doesn't at that point say, a friend of converted sinners? It says, a friend of sinners. What does Jesus say? Love your neighbor. Whoever your neighbor is, that's your neighbor. Whatever their disposition, their problem, their sin, their grief, their junk, whatever, it's your neighbor. You love your neighbor. God says, pray that I 
bless your enemies. That's how we pray. Pray you bless our enemies. Jesus looked with compassion on the multitudes. He told us, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Why? Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Right? A Jonah sits back, does nothing. A Jonah is self-consumed. A Jonah just holds the message in. A Jonah runs from the responsibility of actually proclaiming good news. Jesus runs toward, runs in. I had an email exchange with a friend this week. And he was teasing me. He lives down in California. He says, dude, congratulations, Washington State. Wow. And I said, I know. I live in a state where a dude in a suit can marry a dude in a dress, and they're going to throw a bouquet of cannabis after the wedding. And I'm on the best mission field in the world. You're on the best mission field. Don't look at it and say, oh, cursing. You're on the mission. You live in Nineveh. And you've got the message. Just pray together. Jesus, again, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these stories that resonate when we reflect. And so, Jesus, I pray that we will take seriously both the message of not running away from you, but running toward where you're going. And as we go, we go with the message that you have given and that we will love the people around us regardless of their condition because their condition will not change unless we share your message. So inspire us to act, inspire us to obey, and more than that, inspire us to delight so much in you. We delight in what you delight in. And you delight in seeking and saving sinners, of whom we are chief. Remind us of your grace and your love, and may we give that to others in your awesome name.